0: This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon, entitled Fully Alive Marriage, The Call to Tell God's Story, is by Bishop Stewart and Catherine Ruck and is part six in the series.
1: So, Stewart and I are going to try to do this together. We're going to just put this on display right up here, right? (laughs) So, years ago, Stewart and I took some dancing classes. The first one we took was a line dancing class you know, grapevine to the left, grapevine to the right, that sort of thing. We had to learn to move in concert with a bunch of people. We met a bunch of people, it was so much fun. Um, It was a little hard to coordinate, but nothing like we took the ballroom dancing class. Now this was a whole different challenge. Our teachers, Frank and Marlis, taught us that we had to have an initiator and a responder in the dance, or the dance would be impossible. That the goal though was to move effortlessly across the dance floor in concert with one another in such a way that if someone were watching, they would not be able to tell who was leading and who was following. In fact, it was become, to become so fluid that the dance itself would capture you in its joy and that the one individual part would not be the focus or the concern of the dance. Now that's a great vision but making it happen was a lot harder than it looked when Frank and Marlis were doing it. We were two separate people trying to move, and we both had ideas of how that was gonna happen. Stuart wouldn't lead by moving his foot, and I would try to take over and end up stepping on his toes. Stuart was not always sure how to follow the pattern of the dance in such a way that he could actually lead someone else in the dance. Marlis, though, taught all the women a very helpful tactic. To, the, to help the men who were leading. She taught us that since the man can't see what's behind him when he's moving, we were supposed to be those eyes to see what was behind him. And if we saw that he was going to back into someone, we were supposed to squeeze his shoulder. Now, I loved that little tactic. <laughs> Now, Stuart, I'm sure this will surprise you, loved careening around the dance floor. And he expected me just to sort of anticipate and respond to his moves, some of which were definitely not in the book, um, such as the move he invented called the Pink Panther. (laughs) I would definitely sort of (laughs) bristle and resist his initiative uh, when he wanted to do the butterfly or the pink panther. He'd whisper, No, 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 we're not. We're not, we're not no. That
0: was a long time ago. Um,
1: <laughs> he would say to me, We're going to do the butterfly. And then he would just do it. Anyway, but as we began to surrender to the dance, um, I will say that it was a lot of fun. Now, God is telling a story on earth about his eternal love story with humankind. Marriage is not primarily for the two people that are in it. Marriage is always fruitful. It always goes beyond the partners. It goes into the world. It extends the generations just in the way that the church um, and the relationship with Christ is always fruitful. Sometimes this is through children. It often is through children and spiritual children. Marriage is considered sacramental in that it is a visible sign that binds up an eternal reality. Though we come to marriage as equals, we do not come representing the same eternal realities. Husbands represent that initiating love of God and his son Jesus who as the head lays down his life for his bride. Wives represent that responsive love of the church, the people of God who give their lives in return for the, lives laid down, for the life laid down for them. We are representing realities so much larger and broader and more transcendent than we are that we should have an awesome response to that. As we come to this teaching today, let us come humbly... We live in a day when people marrying have a 40 to 45% chance of that ending in divorce. Very few marriages that stay together are thriving or have a beautiful bond, two dancing as one. So what have we missed? If you think you have a better idea of how this should go, I suggest we all come to the, to the Word of God and say, what is it that the Lord would teach us here? We need His supernatural Revelation and aid. If you're married here today, I challenge you to let God examine your heart. He will take care of your spouse, wherever they are in the room. Um, you let God deal with your spouse. There's plenty here that no one should walk away without something to take to the cross. So ag- allow God to shed his light in your own heart. When two get married, Often there's this unspoken assumption that two individuals will come together, they'll find mutual fulfillment and blessing without any understanding that they're supposed to become one. And becoming one necessarily means that we have to come to the cross and die to ourselves to be metamorphosed into a new reality, which is one, And this has to happen every day, over and over. We have a built-in daily crucible in which we die for the other. This does not mean that you don't maintain your individual personality, uh, but it does mean that the good of the marriage and the family becomes more important to you than your individual dreams and aspirations. God has established the marriage as one of the great crucibles where we learn to love, in which we're transformed. both our love for Christ and our love for the
0: other. Let's go ahead and turn to our main text for this morning which is Ephesians chapter 5. You have that in your bulletins, perhaps in your Bibles, in our prayer journals, and we're going to work through uh, that passage today. I am acutely aware that if you have heard teaching on this passage, it's possible that that teaching confused you or brought pain into your life or even division in your marriage and of course the very purpose of the teaching is the very opposite to bring joy and to bring a deep bonding between husband and wife so we have made a commitment to the best that we can to be as gentle around these ominous and powerful and glorious realities that Catherine's just spoken to And yet, to try to do our best to be clear about understanding of what the scriptures are teaching If you're here and you're a settled celibate, I spoke of this last week, you have a sense of being called to celibacy, then as you hear this sermon, may it encourage your intercessions for those that are called to the vocation of marriage, and may it encourage your help for those who are called to marriage and to family. For those who hope to marry, Catherine and I deeply hope that as you hear this, it will form and shape as you interact with Scripture what that man that you may marry should be like or what that woman should be like. For marriages that are here, or if you're listening to this, and you're in a marriage in crisis, while we think this could help, and we hope this will serve you, there may be far more immediate and urgent work that has to happen. And I want to urge you, come into the life of a gospel church where Christ and His bride are bonded in true unity. Find professional help where needed. There's two main themes in this Ephesians 5, and this would be the outline for today. The first is tell God's story with your heart. Tell God's story with a converted heart, and tell God's story with your body. Now some of the telling God's story with your body interweaves with telling God's story with your heart, and some of it can be more distinct, and you'll see some interweave as I teach through it, and as Catherine teaches through it, and then some distinction particularly at the end. Let's go to our text, verses 21 to 33, particularly. Okay, Learning how to read Paul and study Paul is extremely important. If you come at Paul with an American education background where you were taught to understand an essay through a topic sentence, supporting arguments that sequentially move their way down, which is a great thing to have learned, Paul will consistently confuse you. If you think his main idea is first, and he kind of spells that out throughout the rest of his essay or his paragraph or whatever it might be, you will miss the main point of what Paul is trying to get at. As a matter of fact, what Paul does in his text is he often nestles the heart of his message in the heart of the text itself. Rather than thinking sequentially, one, two, three, four, five, with Paul, often when you're reading him, you need to go to the heart as if you had like a, a, a cut log and you had rings that start in the center of that log and move out like that. So you need to go to the heart of the text, see what the most important thing is, and move from there. This is very important, because if you've read Ephesians 5 before, you read about wives, you read about husbands, You at that point already, if you are engaged at all, have all kinds of thinking and emotion and questions and what's going on and what does it mean that wives submit and what does it mean that husbands are the heads and how does that work? And you get to that verse, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ in the church. And in some ways, you don't have any more energy. You're just like, oh, it refers to Christ in the church. It's like that piece when you're putting something complicated together and you have one piece and you don't know where it still fits. in whatever you're putting together, you go, oh, well, let's just throw it out. It probably isn't important. That's the most important. That's the heart of what Paul is saying. As a matter of fact, everything else lines up underneath that. The heart of this text is husband and wife become one flesh. What does that mean? Paul tells us what it means. He uses the word mystery, which again, that word is so important. It isn't done it. It isn't, oh, this is foggy, like a mystery genre might be. This is actually revelation. That's what that word means in the original language. What Paul is saying is, and here is a revelation of what it means that man and woman, husband and wife are in a one flesh union. It is a revelation. It is a picture. It is a story of Christ's love for the church. That's the center of this passage. Everything else has to revolve around that, be consistent with that, and be true to that center. This is a story of unity with distinction. This is a story that starts with the love of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who is one God and three persons. This is the story of Jesus and the church, and the union between Jesus and his church, of Jesus and the Christian. And the call for the Christian to live in Jesus. And Jesus to live in the Christian. And this story, which is the story of the good news of God, that he wants to rescue humanity from their sin and their anger and their division and their violence. That's the good news of God. He wants to do so by marrying, through Jesus, humanity in the church. He picked the most intimate beautiful picture that earthly people can understand to say, this is what it's about. Not only do I want to teach you this, I want this to be manifested through marriages that tell that story. Husbands are storytellers. Wives are storytellers. This is really important. If you approach this text like, oh, now I learn about the husband's role and the wife's role. And that's where it starts. It doesn't start there. We'll get there. But it's not even about roles. If you approach the text that way, it's like finding a meteor in a farmer's field. You may not even know it's a meteor. It still looks like a rock. Oh, there's a rock. If you think about this as the roles of husbands and wives, it's like a rock. But if that meteor is seen shooting through the sky on a planet-filled night, when you see a shooting star, what do you do? Hey, look, 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 look. There's a shooting star. Against the backdrop of the cosmos, against the backdrop of the kingdom of God, every marriage... For each generation, and the short period of time that that is, relatively speaking, it's like a shooting star that everyone should go, look at that husband and wife. Look how they love one another. That tells me about God and His love and His sacrifice for humanity. Who tells the story? God tells the story. But God uses us, co-laborers. So as Catherine said, marriage is not ultimately about us, and that is one of the most important sort of biblical understandings to enter into. That will change how you think about marriage profoundly. It is not ultimately about us. It's not even ultimately about helping each other realize their dreams. Although that can be part of it, for sure. But no, it's about something far more satisfying than about each other. It's about telling God's story as storytellers. The husband telling a story. The wife telling a story. The husband's heart telling a story. The husband's body telling a story. The wife's heart and body telling a story. This is why Paul says, imitate God. Verse 1, chapter 5. That is a very important understanding of all that is happening here. Imitate God. Be imitators of God. How? By walking in love as Christ loved us. There's one main stage direction being given to the actors in this story, and it's this. Sacrifice your life. Husband. Wife. Wife. Let's look at the storytellers, verses 21 to 30. Here now we understand, oh, okay, here's the bigger story. Here are the storytellers. First, we have an important uh, contextual verse in verse 21, which speaks to submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. There's an important understanding of mutual submission. Now, this is placed in a larger teaching, starting in verse 15 of chapter 5, in terms of a call to the entire church community in Ephesus. I expect, Paul is saying, for you to walk in wisdom, which looks like submitting to one another that certainly has application in marriage in that we are both to be submitting to one another as we both submit to Christ. But that does not in itself erase the distinctiveness that's part of the union. Union, both submit. But the distinctiveness is husbands submit as they love and cherish and nourish their wives in headship. Wives submit as they live in submission and response in self-sacrificing love to the husband who gives their life for them. I do not think Paul is saying mutually submit and then contradicts himself and speaks to the wife's call to submit in the next verse. There's something far more dynamic happening here than that. There is mutual submission, but it has distinctiveness. Let's look at husbands first. And the reason we look at husbands first is they have this call in their call to love as first initiators of self-sacrificing love. Indeed, the wife's call makes more sense as we understand the husband's call as a first initiator of self-sacrificing love, which is how I would understand the text teaching on what Paul calls headship. Wives, he says in verse 22, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Let me speak to the word head it's only used once here by the way and paul uses it in one other place in his teachings it has a strong connotation i think it did then i think it has even more so now So it needs to be properly careful and carefully handled but it is a word that paul uses and so we need to seek to understand it there are three meanings to how it is used in the scriptures one and i think this is actually more important than often given um, diligence and care is it refers to the head, it refers to the cranium. As a matter of fact, that's the way it's most often referred to as, as the cranium. Two, it refers to authority. Three, it can refer to source. The first two meanings are cranium and authority, by far the most common uses in Scripture, although it could at times mean source. Here in Ephesians, though, the word has been used prior to chapter 5, it's using chapter 1, verses 21 and 22 to talk about Jesus. And what it means that he's head? it says this: "Far above all rule, verse 21, chapter one, and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age but in the age to come, the fathers put all things under Jesus's feet and have given him as head over all things in the church." So Paul has used this word to speak of authority, in this case in Jesus, first and foremost. But I do believe that the word has some element, and it's important to maintain to the ministry authority that the husband is given. There's a consensus on this understanding of this word head from the early church theologian John Chrysostom to Reformation theologian John Calvin to contemporary Anglican thinker John Stott. Indeed, there is so much written on what this word means and there's actually so little written on how it might be lived out. I found it a challenge as your pastor. Whole books on this word very few that I could find saying, "How does this actually get lived out?" I would argue that the more important question here is not does it mean head as authority? I think there's a strong case that it does mean head as authority, but instead, what kind of authority? Now this word has to be baptized for many of us. Christianized, gospelized. We have to immediately hear Jesus saying. To his disciples who thought authority meant lording over and competitiveness and ruling in a kind of autocratic way. That is not at all what the kingdom of God is. He confronts them and says, no, 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 no. Authority in the kingdom of God means that I have come as a ransom for your life. I've come to wash your feet. That's how you understand authority. That's how it's defined in the kingdom of God. Now, misinterpretations of this idea of headship where it is not rightly understood as gospel kingdom authority has brought incredible pain. Incredible division, often a sword between the sexes. It's the opposite of what true headship should do, which is draw in and bond and die as our Lord Jesus Himself died. As a matter of fact, to be really clear, rather than using the word headship over and over again for Paul, he uses it once in the verse we just looked at, and then he uses the word love three times, verses 25 and 28, and then To build on the understanding of love, he uses two other synonyms for love. Nourish and cherish in verse 29. This is not some sleight of hand. I'm not trying to make this seem better. That's what Paul is doing. He's saying, husbands, do you understand what it means? It's Jesus' crucified authority. You need to be baptized, a conversion of heart, husbands. That you lay down your lives for your wives and your children. That you love. Am I not clear enough? By saying love... Wasn't that clear enough in 1 Corinthians 13 is it's the greatest of all things? Wasn't that clear enough? Let me be clearer. Nourish your family and your wife. Cherish your family and your wife. Maybe be absolutely clear Paul is saying. A few weeks ago I described manhood as providing and protecting. Now in light of this teaching, we can actually go even farther in understanding that men and husbands are called to provide and protect by being first initiators, by stepping out first in self-sacrificial love, and life-giving. Some may say, okay, so wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, women, wives never initiate? They they never lead? I don't think Paul is saying that at all. We know that women are leading and initiating things throughout the Scriptures. As a matter of fact, we have to work back to one flesh. Go back to your your center of your your log, okay? One flesh union. Two have become one, which means there's going to be a profound reciprocity between husband and wife. I've never heard anybody put it better than the Catholic thinker, Dr. William May. And May says this, husbands give in a receiving way. Wives receive their first responders. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Wives receive in a giving way. So that when this happens, the giving in a receiving way, and the receiving in a giving way, there is a deep, deep bond and dance. There's distinction in there. And yet there's profound reciprocity. Paul's teaching here asks two things of us. First, to receive the teaching that the husbands call to this ministry of authority of taking responsibility for the whole, for wife, children, kingdom of God, and yet to emphasize as the text emphasizes that what this looks like is Jesus dying on the cross. I really want our husbands to hear that. Do not shirk your authority, but know your authority, not as the the Gentiles led, but in dying for your wife and your children. What does that look like? Let's go back to head as cranium. What does it look like to to live this way? Well, I think it has something to do with what the head does, which is, in part, see and hear. This gets to the naming understanding that we talked about in the manhood sermon with Adam and Joseph that part of ministering love and cherishing and nourishing is stopping long enough and being present in the Holy Spirit and in Jesus long enough to see look what God is doing in my wife I want to articulate that. I want to call that out. I want to bless that. Look at God's doing in my children. I should always have a sense for each of my kids in prayer. God's doing this right now in, in, in her and this right now in him. And how can I pray for that? How can I text them to remind them of that? How can I lay down my life so they can have that more and more? How do I work hard and live hard and serve hard so they can be released fully into their calling? It's just deep, deep call of providing and protecting in that way. Loving our wives as they submit to us as husbands is not about, will you do what I say? But much more about, can you receive what I think I'm seeing and hearing about your call, our family's call, our kingdom work? For wives to even begin to be open to this, especially if there's not been a pattern of you receiving her, seeing her, listening to her, there's got to be a coming into her world. It has to be in being emotionally and physically present in her world and truly seeing her and naming and articulating that for her to even be open to what might be said. I've handled a lot of marriage crises in 25 years. I've never had a marriage crisis where the wife comes to me and says, you've got to help because my husband is so attentive. He's so emotionally and physically present in so many ways. I can't take it, Pastor. Pastor. Would you meet with him one on one and get him sorted out? Honestly, I, I know it's funny, but it's true. Never had a wife say, We got an imbalance of an attentive, caring, nourishing, cherishing husband. Now, this kind of learning how to listen and learning how to see means dying to our sinful nature, right, brothers? I, I did not know how to do this at all. I think I've grown in 25 years of marriage. Yes. So, here's the story. Talk about how I didn't see her listen early on in our marriage actually like the first month of our marriage and we got home from our honeymoon and we got to our apartment where we were going to live and I opened up the freezer and packed in our freezer was all this frozen fish I don't know how that frozen fish got there nobody will ever know will we'll never understand it we didn't have frozen fish at our wedding and I open up I see all this frozen fish and I say to Catherine oh wow I hate frozen fish to which she says oh okay good to know I think we're done she thinks we're done so we move on with life two weeks later I come into the apartment been studying all day and she's preparing a meal for us. And I walk in and I'm immediately kind of gobsmacked by this noxious sort of cloud of ammonia smelling, <laughs> Greasy.
1: I think I, I actually was supposed to tell the story, but in both services. Now, Stuart's telling a story. Okay.
0: Because it's bad. It's bad on me, brothers. So I realized she made the frozen fish. And I come around the corner and I'm like, and I say it in this irritating laugh. <laughs> Did you make frozen fish? I hate that laugh. She hates that laugh. And <laughs> she goes, yeah, sure. I said, oh, maybe you don't remember. I hate frozen fish. I said, no, 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 I remembered. But you never want to throw it out. So I thought I'd mask it as a kind of exotic Mexican recipe. Okay, at this point, I'm not seeing Catherine. I'm not hearing Catherine. I take all of my theater training and years of work, and I bring my fist down on a cabinet with china pots, and I go, I hate frozen fish! This is a Tennessee Williams moment.
1: And then I run in sobbing because I've never had somebody talk to me like that. That's just so over the top. And I grab the fish and I throw it in the garbage. I just take it all and it's...
0: So I dive into the garbage and and I'm trying to eat it out of the garbage. I'm so sorry. I'm such an oaf. What did I do? Okay. All right. Don't imitate that. That's the point. Don't imitate me. That's what I'm trying to say.
1: We didn't study theater for nothing.
0: Yeah. (laughs) But it actually was really important because we would have a lot more serious arguments over the years, not about frozen fish, It had to do with the fact that I wasn't seeing or hearing Catherine. I get into the argument and I just want to win. I just want to win. I don't want to see her, hear her, understand that she grew up in a country like Brazil where you would never throw food out. Appreciate, actually, she was making a meal for me, sacrificially. So as we die to self as husbands, and we seek to serve and love our wives and our children, a lot of it has to do with seeing and hearing and being present to them. Here's another application, a little more serious than frozen fish, and that has to do with our intimate relationship as husbands and wives. Because in that intimate relationship, we see is we not only tell God's story with our heart, as the scriptures are teaching, but we tell God's story with our bodies. That We have this revelation in scripture of this call to be responsive and to be initiating. But it's actually designed in your very body. A male body is made to initiate. It's made to enter in. A female body is really made to receive the male. This is really important. Because God wants this story told on so many levels and in so many ways. It's a beautiful thing. The husband's body and the wife's body in the way that they're made to be one. And made to be one in ways that reflect their distinctiveness. But what can happen in a marriage is a husband often ignorantly, that doesn't even know he's doing it, imports lust and the objectification of women that he is surrounded by all the time that he may expose himself to. And inappropriate images, he imports that into his marriage. And no longer is he seeing and hearing his wife for who she is, a real flesh and blood woman, but he's imposing something else on her. He's objectifying her. And when lust enters in marriage and the wife, maybe confused, tries to maybe step up for that, or she's read stuff in secular literature that says you need to, even some evangelical literature heaven forbid, that you need to actually kind of incite your husband's lust and meet his husband's lust, and that's how you'll keep him. That's so utterly confused. That's not giving the gift of, of, of one another. I'm not saying that husbands and wives deny one another. No, they need to move into a deep donation of self to one another in a deep bonding. But when that gets confused in lust, the marriage turns in on itself, it curves in on itself, and it begins to die. And for some wives, they need to realize, oh, I shut down sexually because I felt like he was coming... after me in a way that wasn't seeking to get a gift from me or to give me a gift and i actually participated in that And the wife may need to repent of that husband you may need to repent to your wives i didn't even know that you could bring lust into marriage i thought lust was outside of marriage it's both you may need to repent to your wife and say i didn't even know what i was doing i'm so sorry i need to cherish and nourish you in every way including our sexuality As wives can hear that from their husbands, that they'll be nourished and cherished, listened to and heard in a self-sacrificing way, they then are freed to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Jesus who died for the church. They're freed. Now, it may take a season of healing. It may take a season of growth. But wives can then be first responders of self-sacrificing love. Husbands, first initiators. Wives, first responders. Both take courage. Both take strength. Both take nobility. Paul says to the wives, you're a storyteller. You tell the story of the church. You tell the story of the people of God. This is the story of being a first responder, of receiving the love of God. And this is at the heart of submission. It's the story of the feminine heart that is made to receive and be open. I see so many of our young women here being raised in a church and in families. where They're just open to receiving the love of the Lord. If God calls him into marriage, the love of a husband, it just blesses us. And we we rejoice in so much of the parenting that's happening, this raising up men who are learning how to initiate self-sacrificing love and women that are learning how to be receptive and receive. One of the most tangible ways that a wife can live out this first responder place, and this may seem rather pedantic, but it's actually really important, is by learning to affirm her husband. And When it comes to that, we're really simple. It can be written, it can be verbal, uh, it, could, it, it could be Gifts. just about, it could be a gift, it could be anything. And it's not just that we're so needy, <gasps> please affirm me, it's actually how the marriage dance is supposed to happen. So we need that affirmation, we need to know, oh, you're open to receiving me? You, you're open to receiving what I'm doing? You're open to receiving the work that I'm doing? Again, to make the corollary, I've had a lot of marriage crises, never the a husband come to me and said, could you get my wife? to settle down on all the affirmations she's given me. It's just, it's just too much. I can't handle it. I'm too emboldened. I'm, I'm too encouraged. Okay.
1: My turn? Your turn. Oh, wow. All right. This dance of headship and love and submission and response, uh, when incarnated in a lived life, is really difficult to examine as parts. Um, it's difficult, it was difficult even for us to come up for, with examples of just one or the other, because when there is surrender to God and what he's called us to, it's just a very natural unfolding. But here's a way I feel God has used Stuart's headship in my life. Years ago when I was teaching high school, I was called in by administration and asked if I would consider... Um, in addition to my teaching and other extracurricular work, leading a traveling theatrical troupe. Now, this played right to my desires and strengths, um, and I was excited when I sat down to tell Stuart about it. Now, it used to be in my nature, and may still be a little bit as I'm growing, to take on way too much and overfill my schedule. So Stuart listened carefully to my impassioned vision for the theatrical troupe, and then he began to ask me questions. He he said, I know you'd be great at this, but if you want to do this, what are you going to stop doing? What thing will you give up? Now, it had been my intention just to hope everything would work out, not to eliminate anything from my life. And I chafed at Stuart's strong response here. But he went on to explain how this extra activity would affect us as a couple, how it would affect our lives, now, Stuart wasn't trying to keep me from something I loved. He was just trying to get me to weigh the consequences of my choices on not just me, but on all of us. I realized I needed to submit to what he was seeing in me and in our lives as a couple. He was not being selfish. He was right in this case. He could see a pattern in me that was unhealthy. So I decided not to pursue that presenting opportunity, and it, it was hard, but it was a very good decision and bore fruit in our family. This dance um, is vulnerable for both the husband and the wife. It's extremely vulnerable. Because of this, we can actually develop patterns that steal us one against the other. Because loving is vulnerable by its very definition, and we bring our heart in our hands, and we're thinking, how are they going to handle my heart and my loves and my desires? I once saw a car that said on the front the beautiful thing about marriage is that you're fully known by another. Inside it said, the horrible thing about marriage is that you're fully known by another. Every person comes into a marriage with an unopened suitcase of selfishness, need, and expectations. This suitcase begins to open further and further over the course of your life in a revelation of dirty laundry. G.K. Chesterton, the thinker, said, Love is not blind. That's the last thing that it is. Mm-hmm. Love is bound. Mm-hmm. And the more it is bound, the less it is blind. The importance of this commitment, of being in a relationship where there's, you're bound in one, is that it allows the safety for your own unhealed and sinful self to be revealed so that you can encounter the cross and its redemption in the deepest places of your soul. You begin to see in the other what seems like a stumbling block to your own flourishing, when that thing can actually be the path to your own maturity. When there's a disorder within the marriage, a breakdown of bonding occurs. When the husband exercises authority that is not born of self-sacrificial love, It is almost impossible for a wife to respond in submission. Though she needs to look for every opportunity to affirm and where she can submit, she's left to discern all the time. How do I submit as unto the Lord when the leadership is something that is not of the Lord? She cannot. What if her husband is not providing and protecting, but is in the marriage to have his own selfish needs met? How can she respond in respect? Usually, she shuts down in fear and becomes unable to be receptive. Where there is prayerful headship exercised and loving care for the wife and family, it is just so much easier to respond in submission and receive what the husband brings, to respect him even when she may disagree. But what if the man is self-sacrificing and a wife can't receive it? but she is steeled to be independent and self-seeking. Or there's just such a history where there's so much fear. What if she's critical and cannot affirm him as a man, cannot support his attempts to initiate, cannot receive him as different than herself? She may think she could do it better, but she needs what he brings, a true man who will see and do things differently than she does. A man will back away in these situations. He'll shut down parts of himself, and he'll have difficulty stepping out in vulnerability again. When the heat of a family is turned up, it's difficult not to become focused on oneself. After one of the births of um, one of our children, I rem- I, probably this story could apply to all of the births of my children, I remember feeling on the edge of my capacity. Stuart felt that he was pressed to the brink at work with all of its demands as well. And when he'd come home to me, I'd be waiting at the door to unload all of my complaints about life and all my expectations from the relief he was going to provide for me. And we began to keep score. You got this time out with a friend and I deserve equal time away. Um, hey, you had that time alone and I need at least that much, more, uh, more, that much or more. You know, I always get up with the kids during the night when you're sleeping soundly. Yeah, but I have to make a presentation tomorrow at work, and, um, you know, I'm going to be there for 12 straight hours. And then my crowning one that I always love to throw, yeah, well, at least you get to be around people who've been raised. I have to spend my day with people who haven't been raised yet. And I get no I mean, what can I say? And uh, I don't get a a promotion either. (laughs) Because
0: I'm always getting promotions.
1: (laughs) It's the way you perceive the other, right? When argument after argument became a catalog of what we had done for the other, we saw the ugly pattern of selfishness. You see, God intends that we do meet a lot of one another's needs in marriage. Not all but a lot. But when we focus on meeting our own needs, because we're afraid the other doesn't see and will not love or respect us or care for us, we actually prevent the possibility of having the blessing of another meeting our needs. Someone has to break the cycle. And here's how you do it. You determine that you will go to the cross with your selfishness. And you will ask for an infilling of the Holy Spirit to meet your own needs. He may do it through your spouse, um, but he will also do a miraculous work in and through you. Some holes in ourselves are so profound that a husband can never fill or a wife can never fill that gaping need. In the face of such fear, fear of loneliness, fear of abandonment, fear of loss of self, fear of um, just not being able to make it, we need a supernatural impartation. As we both seek to, um, to the, come to the Lord and his cross daily to meet us each personally, we then find that we can be free to see the other and meet their needs. And this happens, has happened for us in a better and better way over our marriage. Stuart has always initiated, I I have to say, in a beautiful way, giving to me time and help every week, often at great personal cost. But what we had to grow in is I needed to grow in empathy for his life and the incredible pressure that was on him at all times, and I needed to see it and name it while looking for spaces for him to receive and decompress. Honestly, he needed my submission to his calling and my respect. And then I needed to feel his partnership and emotional presence beyond just doing helpful chores, that he was engaged with me in prayer and planning for the education and raising of our children. Honestly, I needed his authority at home, taking responsibility for the whole. Sometimes the breakdown, though, in a marriage is so profound the hurt so deep that couples actually begin to traumatize each other this is where the larger reality of christ and his church that we so imperfectly represent can draw you in and enfold you for the purpose of healing and restoration if you are the casualty of a failed marriage Whether you're a child of a failed marriage or you were in one that failed, you are in the right place. The church is the place where God can bring that healing to you. If you are in a marriage that is currently in crisis, we have so much help for you. And so we would ask that you you seek that help here. So our hearts tell God's story And our bodies also tell God's story. Stuart um, already alluded to that because we did a whole mishmash in between the services and rearranged a lot of things in our big dance here. Um, But that is um, a way that we tell the story of God in our body through our sexuality. There are other ways, and I just want to mention in in the passage that we had, how the body is mentioned several times. The church is the body of Christ. The husband is to love his wife as his own body. Marriage is a one-body flesh union. I want to share another way that we can live out this transcendent story that we're telling um, and the way we live it out in the body. And this is in our time. Because our lives are living this out in the very small ways every day, right? The moments become months, become years of choices and reactions and patterns. Um, The things that we're talking about take intentionality so that two truly can become one. G.K. Chesterton again says, of all human institutions, marriage is the one which most depends upon slow development, upon patience, Upon long reaches of time, upon magnanimous compromise, upon kindly habit. So one sphere that Stuart and I have really uh, attempted to bring this to life, this dance to life, is in our calendars. Um, Time is a gift given by God, and how we spend it has eternal import. Time in marriage is a shared gift, and it becomes symbolic of what is important to the whole So one of the places we tell the gospel story in our home is on our calendars. Now, when we do calendar time, which is something that Stuart initiated, and I hate because I hate calendar time, um, and the kids go (laughs) scattering when they hear we're doing it, they're doing calendar time. Because they know know. that we often have arguments. (laughs) Run for the hills. Um, No. In this, it's so important because this is where we put uh, feet on what's important in our marriage so um, we hammer out the day-to-day activities the driving the long-term travel decisions we bring to one another those decisions that shape our lives and how they will be reflected on our calendar so we want to finish with a story about this just to hopefully cast a vision for how this can unfold in a marriage Um, i will say this this is a mythic story but um Most of our stories about this are not mythic, so I picked the best one because a lot of them are pretty mundane and you wouldn't want to hear them. So um, we had a situation and a season in our lives in which Stuart was invited to go to a meeting in North Carolina. Now, the whole North American Anglican movement was at a critical turning point and leaders were gathering. In our calendar time, I told Stuart, I just cannot handle one more trip. I needed him on the home front at this difficult time. It was hard for Stuart, very hard, but he agreed and he truly operated in his headship here by seeing me and laying down his desires here for the sake of our family. Now sometimes in this kind of situation, Stuart will push back and I need to listen and we'll have a fruitful discussion that leads to me sacrificing something. But this time we agreed it was the best decision for him to go, not to go. Then I had a dream. Now, I wish I had a lot of dreams about what Stuart's supposed to do, but (laughs) I think it's the only dream I've had about what Stuart's supposed to do. It was vivid, and I will spare you all the content, but suffice it to say, it was really clear in the dream that Stuart was supposed to go to this meeting. And so I woke up and I said, Stuart, you're supposed to go to that meeting in North Carolina.
0: What happened at that point, of course, is I'd already given up the hope of going to the meeting. I was... At peace with that she wakes up and says you have to go to the meeting so when i stepped on that plane three days later i didn't step on in a kind of reaction i'm going to go to that meeting and show her how important it is i went in as a partner we went together and it changed the entire trip and that we were partnering together with this sense of gospel adventure what did the holy spirit have and why did he give Catherine this dream well two critical things happened on that trip first of all i ended up in a spontaneous and highly unusual face-to-face meeting one-on-one meeting with the leading bishop of our movement who would soon become the archbishop, where he, as a kind of father in Christ, named some things he saw in my life. He named and articulated realities he saw and things he wanted to see me be a part of that changed how I thought about my entire work, my entire ministry, and our future. That would not have happened had I not gone to North Carolina. Second, the next day, as if that wasn't enough, I go on a run with an old friend, Father Aaron Damiani, who's a younger priest that was raised up here at Resurrection. He'd been working somewhere else in the country. was getting ready to take an associate rector job out on the East Coast. And as we're running, literally the heavens open. And in our conversation, we sense the Holy Spirit descending on us. And I say to Aaron, you know, maybe you should do that. Or maybe you should come to Chicago and plant a church with eight folks that are praying about a church in Chicago. Aaron says, oh my word. I think I'm supposed to do that. I got to pray about that. And that moment catalyzed a moment in the Lord, where now we have 250 people meeting in Uptown in Chicago at Emmanuel Anglican Church. I think this story is actually really instructive because a few things happen. First of all, we talked about womanhood and that robust internal agency. I think it's intriguing that Catherine was given a dream. Now men are given dreams. Joseph has dreams. It's not exclusive, but she's given an internal kind of picture in sleeping in a dream. She awakens and sort of releases me, and I go out to a kind of external agency to this call to be more involved in providing and protecting in the work of North American Anglicanism. But the most important thing is we told the gospel story together in our different storytelling capacities. And it brought us closer together and bonded us as we shared that incredible gospel adventure. Husbands and wives, remember the heart of this passage. You've been given a one-flesh union to tell the story of Jesus' death and resurrection and his love for the church. Husbands and wives, tell your story. Tell it with your heart. Tell it with your body. Tell the story that God has come in Jesus to marry humanity in the church. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Thanks for listening.